For someone who studies elections, Anthony Fowler doesn't get that worked up about voting. I did vote, but had something come up, had, you know, had there been some important meeting and I didn't have time to vote, I would have not voted and I wouldn't have felt that bad about it. (laughs) It's not that he's apathetic about the political process. I mean, this is a man who has written papers on election turnout and marginalized voters. He works on this for a living. He likes to vote. The thing is, Fowler says that people just don't have that much reason to vote. It's kind of a pain in the butt. You have to get to your polling place, maybe take time off work, maybe find a babysitter or take a screaming kid with you. And then when it's over, if you're lucky, you might get a sticker. Not the biggest incentive in the world. He compares voting to other socially minded actions, like not littering. None of us really has a strong incentive to not throw our trash in the street. But if everyone threw their trash in the street, we would clearly live in a worse world. Voting is the same kind of problem. We would all be better off if we all voted. But of course, none of us individually has a strong individual incentive to vote. The way that we normally solve those collective action problems is we actually have financial incentives, like you get fined if you litter in the street. We could do that for voting, and we just don't. And, he says, we never will. Welcome back to Radio Harris. The midterm elections just ended, so we figured it was the perfect time to talk to Fowler, who, by the way, is an associate professor in the Harris School. We got him to sit down and talk to us, not just about what happened in the midterms, but also about the kinds of things that go on behind the scenes in every election, like whether get-out-the-vote initiatives work, whether voters trust paper ballots or electronic ballots more, and what happens when political candidates claim that voter fraud is going on. Stay with us. We'll get to the midterms in a minute, but first, let's wrap up this question about incentives in voting. Why does Fowler say the United States will never make voting mandatory? Young people, um, underrepresented minorities, non-churchgoers, poor people, all of those groups that are currently underrepresented in the electorate would become more represented, and that would almost surely have implications for election results and for policy outcomes as well. Most likely, the, po- the actual parties would have to shift their platforms. And most likely, the Democrats would do better in some places, um, at least in the short run. And I'm sure lots of things would be different because now elected officials would have to be accountable to a different set of voters. Elected officials reasonably infer that there are these partisan and policy consequences. And so if you were elected under the old system of voluntary voting, you have little incentive to push for any kind of reform that might lead you to lose your job or lose your seat. So there you go. The politicians in power aren't going to make it possible for more people to vote because they don't want them to. But back to this particular midterm election. What happened to the Democrats' hopes of a big blue wave? You know, Democrats got roughly 10 percentage points more votes than they did in 2016 across the House races. At the same time, the districts and the states that were that were up for election were such that that 10 percentage point wave wasn't enough. In fact, the Democrats lost a bunch of seats in the, in the Senate, which is exactly what you would have expected because 2012 was a very good year for Democrats. And so those same states were up again in the Senate. And so it was going to be extremely hard for, for the Democrats to pick up seats. There was never a strong reason to expect a, you know, that the Democrats were going to pick up a bunch of seats in Congress. This was not welcome news to some of Fowler's Democrat students. And I tried to warn them ahead of time of the reasons why they should not expect a massive Democratic victory on election night, including the fact that regression to the mean would predict that the Democrats were going to lose Senate seats, including the fact that midterms usually mean 
less turnout and usually mean less turnout among young people and underrepresented groups that normally support Democrats. And of course, you never know for sure if this election is going to be different, right? And there were some dimensions on which it was. It looks like turnout was about 50%, which is notably higher than a typical midterm election. But and I'm still, you know, we're still waiting for all of the data to come back. I suspect that the same general patterns held. I suspect that underrepresented minorities and young people did not vote at dramatically higher rates than they normally vote. I, I suspect it's still the case that people who are 65 are maybe five times as likely to vote as people who are 18. In every midterm, people say they're trying to mobilize those populations. It looks like it's very hard to do that. I've done some studies myself where I looked at data from get out the vote experiments. And you can see fairly clearly in the data that the kinds of people who are most responsive to get out the vote are old, rich, educated, church-going white people who are happy to answer the door and talk to you about politics. And, and the kind of person who doesn't normally vote is the kind of person who also probably doesn't want to open the door and talk to you about politics. And they're not going to care if you try to pressure them to vote. And that makes sense in my mind because the chances that your vote is pivotal in a very large election is basically zero. That's a really interesting policy problem. The fact that the, the voting population is so unrepresentative of the general population, and it's not the kind of thing that I think we're going to solve by more mail and more door knocks and more campaigning and just telling people they need to vote. It's, it's the kind of thing that has to be solved with drastic reforms. While we wait for those reforms, let's talk about voter fraud. This is one place where recent elections do differ from previous ones, Fowler says. It does seem like a historical aberration for the sitting governor of Florida with virtually no evidence to come out and make accusations about voter fraud and to question the political system. That is something that troubles me quite a bit because, of course, one of the reasons we think democracy is so, is, is so great is that in equilibrium, it means that we don't have violent revolutions and we, you know, we, um, we have electoral accountability and, and regardless of who wins, even the people on the losing side, they trust that the process was fair. And so to have a sitting governor come out and say there was widespread voter fraud and they don't trust the elections, that in principle he himself was partly in charge of running, seems like a bad precedent going forward and somewhat unusual historically. I don't want America to fall into a worse equilibrium where every time there's an election, the people on the losing side of it think that the election was a sham. And I don't think there's much evidence at the moment to think it, that's true, to think that there was any kind of massive voter fraud. And so that kind of rhetoric concerns me a little bit. It's troubling because we haven't ever had to think seriously about the health of our democracy in that sense before. To figure out how voters themselves feel about the validity of election results, the Harris School partnered with the Associated Press and the National Opinion Research Center to conduct a poll about voting technology. So we asked a series of questions about whether people have faith in the electoral process, whether people trust that the votes are being counted correctly, and we also wanted to know how different kinds of voting technologies relate to those feelings. Do you have more faith in paper ballots versus electronic voting versus mail-in ballots versus the possibility of even internet voting or some other kinds of new technologies? The public does generally trust the results of elections, um, you know, more so than you might think if you just watch Fox News, uh, but there are real concerns. And the real concerns do seem to relate to technology in the ways that you would expect. The public, I think correctly, realizes that paper ballots are actually more trustworthy than other forms of new technology because, at least with a paper ballot, it's stored somewhere in a safe and you can always go back and recount them if you had to. Whereas 
with purely electronic voting or internet voting, if someone hacks into the system and changes the votes, we may have no way of going back for sure and figuring out what happened and figuring out who really should have won the election. So that's an interesting thing that the low-tech solution might actually be the best one in terms of both uh, mitigating hacking and, and also in getting the public to actually trust the result of the election. Now that the midterms are over, Fowler's friends and family are already asking him about what to expect in the next presidential election. Like a lot of other experts, he says that the voters to watch are the working class whites who live in close swing states like Ohio and Indiana. My personal inclination is that Democrats who think that they don't need to worry about those voters and they can win elections just by saying the same things louder, I think they're a little bit misguided. Most of the evidence suggests that moderate candidates perform better in elections. Not surprisingly, there are a lot of moderates out there. We, we tend to think of, of America as Democrats and Republicans, and they hate each other, but that's not really what the data looks like. There are a lot of voters right in the middle, and there are a lot of voters that are perfectly happy to switch parties depending on which one is offering a better policy proposal or which one is offering a more moderate centrist position. So if the Democrats are really serious about being more competitive in elections, they are not going to succeed by just nominating um, an extremist who does an even better job of saying it really loudly. And if you want to be a policy leader, like a lot of our students at Harris want to, um, you're not going to be successful if, if your thought is, I'm just going to get in front of them and explain to them why they're wrong. To be a policy leader, you have to understand the political process, understand the incentives, and try to find solutions and find ways to work together. In other words, he says, Democrats aren't going to win back seats by telling Trump voters how stupid, racist, and sexist they are. It's easy for liberals and Democrats, people on the, on the political left, to say, what's wrong with all of those Trump supporters? He, he says terrible things about women. He says terrible things about minorities. He, and I don't think the fact that people are willing to support Trump, despite, his, despite those shortcomings, means that they themselves are sexist or racist or don't care about those things. It just might, it might mean that they care more about taxes and they care more about immigration policy. But I don't think the fact that voters are willing to support Donald Trump means that they're unsophisticated or incompetent or actually like flawed candidates in some way, I think they just care a lot about policy and there are meaningful policy disagreements that divide Americans. I think they're supporting him because they like his policy proposals and they're willing to tolerate his personal shortcomings, much like the Democrats were willing to continue to support Clinton despite his personal shortcomings. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Radio Harris, subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud, and please check out our other podcast, Day One which features students, alumni, and faculty using the Harris approach to make an impact in the world from their very first day at Harris and years beyond. That's it for today. This episode of Radio Harris was produced by me, Ann Ford.